0: Okay, so we're going to play, um, what's the vice? Okay, I'm not sure how good this one is, but anyway. Okay, this is from uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm here at the receptionist job. Hi. 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 Yeah. Is this a big old robot? What? The receptionist job, it um, was in the paper, I was here about. Okay, you're all sweaty. I think I got it. There's something strange. Oh, Oh, Kevin, right? Uh, Abby, we spoke on the phone. Hello there. Okay, Kevin. Oh, (laughs) that's a manly name. My (laughs) name's Erin with an E for everything you want. okay well we should probably should probably get started Erin do you want to join us? Yes Erin got some questions. Okay here we go let me just get to my notes. Um, okay all right. first off I just want to say you know, we okay. should always start with a very important question that we're asking all of the applicants um, you know are you seeing uh, anyone right now? <coughs> <laughs> and the deadly sin is last year. Okay, probably the safest one I could do. Um, uh, <laughs> say the least. Um, okay. Now we spent um, all of uh, last year's retreat talking about this. Uh, well, not lust, actually, but relationships and sex. So before we talk about lust, let's talk about sex. And um, <coughs> is sex? um is it for procreation, making babies? Is it for personal intimacy? Is it for pleasure? Or is it all three of those? And if it is all three, which obviously I hope you'd agree it is, is there an order to them? Or does it not matter what the order is? Um, when, why, when our current culture is saturated with sex, is it something that actually either churches don't talk about a lot, or um, they do talk about, but when you hear them talk about it, it actually doesn't sound very much different from what the world says about it. The first thing I want to say, and this is going to be probably more me talking than um, getting you to talk, but anyway. The first thing I'd say is it's never just sex. It's never just sex. Um, and I don't mean this is the last word on sex, but firstly I would say that, that sex is one of Uh, the most, if not the most, intimate bonding activities two people can do. It just is. And when properly used, our when when they're in the right order our sexual desires and the fulfilment of those sexual desires can be one of the greatest helps for strengthening and deepening our giving and receiving of love. And that is physical. And the Bible calls this becoming uh, one flesh, and it is the act of marriage, this one flesh union. But of course, interestingly, Paul uses that same phrase to describe what goes on physically between a man and a prostitute. They too become one flesh, which means that whatever the intention of the two parties engaged in this is, however casually they see it, having sex with someone unites you to them. However, the Bible is clear that that sex act, you know, sexual intercourse, should be reserved for marriage and any sexual activity outside of marriage, and you you can discuss this if you want to, any sexual activity outside of marriage, um, the Bible refers to as sexual immorality in the New Testament, it uses this word "porneia." It's this global term for any sexual um, activity out of outside of marriage. Okay, so firstly, um, it's never just sex; it's a one flesh union. Secondly, sex is intimately tied up with procreation, with making babies. It's just the way it is, you know, with having babies, creating new life, and future families and future generations. Sex is intimately tied up. With that, that's the way we're plumbed, putting it bluntly. Thirdly, it is for our mutual pleasure and delight, for a couple's mutual pleasure and delight. You know, if you look at, we won't go into it uh, tonight, but if you look at Proverbs five fifteen to nineteen, it's pretty graphic. Again, it talks about a husband rejoicing physically in his wife of being intoxicated, getting drunk, literally being led astray by her physically, by her love physically expressed. And it's why in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, Paul describes sex, interesting, as a conjugal right. Okay, it's actually the word for debt. That a husband and a wife, they owe this to each other. And that as a consequence of that, husbands and wives, he says, should not deprive one another of that. And you don't, de- you don't feel you're being deprived of something if you don't think of it as being good, if you don't think of it as being, if it's not, if it's not a pleasure, if it's not something that you want. And, um, and Paul says, hey, don't use this as a weapon against each other. So Christianity doesn't minimise sex, it doesn't denigrate it, it doesn't even say it's a necessary evil. And I, would, I, mean, I can't remember if we talked about this last year or not, but you know, there, there is this sort of thinking in some sections of the church, and you know, so I have uh, at least one friend who's like this, It sees sex as a necessary evil. And that's a very, uh, that's a, that's a very unbiblical way of seeing sex. Uh, in fact, it's the, what the Bible says is the opposite, and it talks about the, the goodness of right desire, because, biblically, sexual desire in and of itself is, is not sinful. I mean, just think about it. God made us sexual beings. He didn't have to. He could have made us reproduce asexually. Or He could have made us sexual beings but not invested it with so much physical pleasure. He could have done it in a way where it was just duty, that this is what you had to do, but you didn't actually enjoy doing it. But he made us both sexual beings and beings with sexual desires, and he made it that way. If you think about it, in Genesis 1, God is the first first person, it's God who tells the first people to go and have sex. There's a whole book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, dedicated to the physical love and sexual relationship between a husband, a bride and bridegroom, which is the song of songs. So sexual desires are good, but they've got to be rightly governed. Okay, so look at uh, this. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 3 to 7. I'll read it to you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. As you look at that, what what are the things that should be guiding and governing our sexual desires? Anyone? do you look at that? What, what, what? Since you you'd be guiding and governing our, our sexual desires, any word to stand out to you? Holiness. Holiness, absolutely. And justice. Not wronging your brother. A, a, indeed, a, a, absolutely. And I would say it sees two words: holiness and honor. Okay, holiness towards God, and honor towards. Your, your brothers and sisters but particularly honouring the person that you are um, having sex with and then um, so it is holiness and honour then look at 1 Corinthians 6.13 where Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body so the Lord is for the body he has made the body he is for it which means sex is good he's the designer of it but the body was also made for him, which means sex is also made to be holy, to be expressed in ways that glorify him. Whatever you do, okay, do it all for the, the glory of God. So the Bible sets the expression of our sexual desires in their proper place, which is the lifelong covenant of marriage. It envisages nothing else but that. And sexual desire is to be a servant of that lifelong covenant. It's not to be a sovereign ruling and controlling us and controlling and damaging people's lives. Which brings us to the vice of lust. The question is, what is it? We look at um, 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's a quest, that's a sort of a statement of the church at Corinth that probably are telling Paul, hey, come on, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul's reply is, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. How are the Corinthians seeing sex? It is, yeah, it's an appetite. And I'm gonna feed that, I'm gonna satisfy that appetite. They see sex as being like food, something to be consumed, uh, to fill my need. And if you think about it, that's pretty much how our current culture also uh, sees sex. It's nothing more, it's as basic as food, it's nothing more than something to be consumed. We shouldn't put any more weight or emphasis on it than that. It's fine if you do it, fine if, if, if you don't. And interestingly, this link with food, lust has always been seen uh, or traditionally has been seen as a close cousin of gluttony because it too, like gluttony, is seeking to satisfy deep desires through physical things that are physically good and should be used in their right place. But it does it by stripping a sexual pleasure down to self-gratification getting what I want, when I want it, apart from a relationship, a, you know, a lifelong relationship of love with somebody. And lust wants those <coughs> physical desires met now. And think how that immediately, I need this now. I need to be satisfied now. I need relief now. Think how that contrasts with the lifelong, slow-burn covenant of marriage. And once satisfied, uh, lust turns and walks away. Okay, so interestingly, lust downgrades sexual pleasure, or sex, to the purely physical. It reduces it. Something that is designed for more than pleasure, it reduces it just to pleasure, to the pleasure of the moment. And it involves my taking and getting, rather than my giving. So rather than trusting God's will that sex be reserved for lifelong covenant of marriage, lust makes my pleasure the goal and I want to be satisfied now and it makes this other person the servant of my desires. As um, uh, John Piper said, lust is sexual desire minus a commitment to honour the other person. It's holiness towards God but it's also about honouring the other person. And, um, and if you think about it, the, the guy who won't commit to his girlfriend but will have sex with her, he's just using her. He's not making any commitment to her, he's not honouring her. He's just using her to fulfil his needs now. And the irony is that while lust tells you it is magnifying sexual desire and pleasure, it's ramping it up, it's taking it to the max level, in reality, actually, it is reducing sex because it fails to honour all that sex is to be about, that we are whole people to be honoured and valued. Now, having said all that, Christianity, and you may, again, you might Come um, uh, come back on this. The Christian tradition has... Well, it, traditionally, it is looked on lust with compassion, interestingly. Now Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, describes it as a sin of weakness, not malice. And the reason for that is that the person who is caught up in lust might actually be very lonely. Now, the person who is constantly doing porn or the person who uses prostitutes. Actually, they may be really lonely. They actually may be very vulnerable. And as, they, as this thing that they have released gets more and more control over their lives, they feel pretty broken by it. And I can think of a number of you know, guys who I have been involved with who are just broken by the guilt and the shame of this thing that has control over them. And they realize that they, they can't control it. Yes? He decided he wanted to become a, uh, a Dominican and yeah. study theology. His family wasn't happy about it, and they sent a prostitute to his room to get him to commit yeah. a sin of uh, fornication as, as a way of tempting him out yeah. of saying you can never be a preacher. And they sent yeah. a prostitute to his room. He chased her out with the iron rod that he had from the fire and, and made her run away so that he wouldn't submit it. Then his family said, okay, you can be a <laughs> <laughs> You passed the test. Okay, let's, um, let's look at lust and uh, desire. And I uh, just want to ask the question, uh, what, what drives us to lust? What's going on that means that we, we want this? Okay, And firstly, I would say, we have, we have natural sexual desires. That's the way we're wired. And so for some people, that may be more than others, but basically we have them. they're natural. It's natural for a guy to find women attractive. It's natural for women to find uh, guys attractive. This is is normal. But secondly, we're tempted and we're surrounded by cues and uh, signals uh, that, particularly in our pornified culture, may be more than at any time uh, in history. So we're tempted. Thirdly, lust promises us it is going to be sweet. And this is a verse that I've always found very helpful, both for myself and for others. And it's Proverbs 3, verse 5, which says, "'The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey.'" And just think about that. And it's not just about, you know, a forbidden woman, a forbidden guy maybe, something outside of marriage, or somebody other than your marriage partner. Lust promises us something enticing. It says, "'This is gonna be so sweet.'" This is going to be really lovely. This is do it for me." And so, you know, just in my own um, uh, work, when you know I've had to help uh, uh, people who are caught up in adultery, it's it's very interesting to just to sit with them and work out where's the honey, what was the honey, what was it that this offered them. And you see, you know, typically what what I see is the guys, okay, and you see this guy is broken, and there's a reason, there was some honey that was offered to him, as to why he he fell for this. And you might find that helpful when you're helping your friends, or for yourself. Okay, fourthly, lust promises us quick release. Okay, this is one of the What this is one of the, this is one of the honeys. It says, um, you're hurting You've got these inner longings, lust, give in, this will do it for you. And in the moment, giving in feels so much easier than self control. Okay, fifthly, I talked about this a bit Uh, by repeatedly giving in, we set up these neural pathways in our brains, these ruts in our characters that can be hard to break free from, uh, which is very sad and it takes work. And of course some people of course would argue that um, uh, there's nothing wrong with lust. I mean how could something that leaves two people happy and feeling good? how could that be wrong? But the truth is that lust deforms our characters and our emotions because it turns us away from true love. It turns us away from true intimacy. It turns us away from commitment. It turns us away from investment in those future generations, which is what investing in kids and family is about. And in the, as I say, in the absence of lifelong commitment, this you're just using this other person, or this other person is using you. Yeah. Even in lifelong commitment, even in marriage, isn't what? it impossible for a husband to treat his wife merely for sexual pleasure? for sure. a wife who's disenchanted and there's emotional yeah. distance and yeah, they're yeah. married on paper, but I'm going to have sex with you and treat your body merely for sexual pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So spou- spouses can lust after each absolutely. other. Absolutely, yeah, and that's a failure of honour. That's a failure of ha- holiness and you're not honouring the Lord, but it's also a failure to honour your husband and your wife. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um Okay, so... Um, just uh lust and desire again okay so um yeah oh sorry oh, yeah, you've done this it's, sorry, it's done. just uh some things we saw that it's a little yeah like there can be too much or too yeah. little of it yeah Can there be too little lust so um i would say that what um uh, within a um and we we'll, we'll get on to what we should be aiming for in a minute and that is chastity but i think within a marriage relationship for example i think what paul talks about here of like a husband or a wife basically withdrawing physically from their spouse you could say that's the opposite or that's the other end of last um I think a, um, a, an overly negative view of sex, of seeing sex as evil, would also be A. So it's not just that you're A section, you're just withdrawing, it's actually that you have this very negative view of sex, which I think is also wrong. Um, OK, so firstly, lust is a disordered desire. If it's wanting sex too much, it's over-desire, or it's by, it wants it too much, or it looks for it in wrong places, like outside of marriage. But interestingly, it is also under-desiring sex. Okay, it's wanting this sex minus, sex minus the kind of relationship that is designed to flourish in, which is either marriage or, the, or within marriage, a relationship of love. And C.S. Lewis talks about this, um, how, how lust actually detracts from sex. He said, it is like trying to get the taste of food without the effort of chewing or swallowing. It just chews and spits it out again. Again, when we repeatedly misuse something, and we habitually do that, we tend to lose our ability to appreciate its true its true goodness. Okay, so it's a disordered desire. Secondly, it's an idolatrous desire. Okay, Dorothy Sayers again said, Uh, Men and women may turn to lust in sheer boredom and discontent, trying to find in it some stimulus that is not provided by the drab discomfort of their Mm. mental and physical surroundings. In other words, lust becomes a substitute, becomes a substitute for intimacy. It it can become a substitute for feeling like you matter, that somebody's looking out for you, that Mm. you matter, that they care about you. And We're we're trying to fill up the void of of a heart. Uh, through uh, through doing that um, Dallas Willard uh, wrote intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul and we cannot escape it this has always been true and remains true today we now keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out and you're know, like a chimpanzee in a you know, a laboratory and an experiment. You know, we, what he's saying is, you know, we keep on hitting the sex button thinking that that's a way to intimacy. When in reality, it's the thing that destroys it if it's outside of this lifelong commitment of, uh, of marriage. Okay. Thirdly, lust is an enslaving desire. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me. That's the Corinthians talking to him again. But I'm not going to be dominated by anything. And once we've allowed lust a foothold, it can feed into it, into this becoming a compulsion for us. And you know, you've you know, you'll have heard about it. Maybe you experience it in your own life. Um, that those who habitually view porn can find their use of it increasing to the point where it dominates their life. And this is. I mean, this is true of many of the um, uh, m- m- many sins. but what's interesting about lust is it requires escalation because it requires you to keep turning up the dial Okay, because level one, you think oh, that'll do it, and it doesn't do it, so you go for something more that'll do it, but that doesn't do it either so you go for more, and that still doesn't do it and this is what you find in these things that we're trying to use physical goods to fill our souls. Okay, it requires keep on escalating it until you realise that you're trapped. So fourthly, lust is a destructive desire. It's destructive for us, it's destructive for others, and it's destructive for our relationship with God. If okay, you think about for our, how, how can it be destructive for ourselves? One of the staggering things is the rise in sexually transmitted diseases. Things like syphilis, which, you know, in our day, we thought had gone virtually, this is unknown, and now, you know, know, the rate of syphilis. Um, This isn't an anti-gay thing, but um, HIV, how did it spread initially? Through race, sexually promiscuous um, communities. And you've seen it in the last few months with monkeypox. How is monkeypox spread? It's spread in very promiscuous sexual communities. So lust, disordered sexual desires can have a physical impact on people's lives. There's tragedy, frankly. And then there are psychological impacts, whether it's another person is physically involved or not. We can end up diminished people, it leaves us unable to appreciate true beauty, true uh, re- relationships or things that are more important than instant sexual gratification and as I said you know when people are trapped by it it leads to self-loathing and self-hatred and despair um, Lust can also blind us to uh, real beauty, to the beauty that's in front of you, you know, Men who regularly consume uh, photoshopped images of bodies enhanced by plastic surgery are going to struggle to see the woman they actually have or could have as being beautiful I've used this example before but I was once speaking to a young guy who said I don't think I would ever be able to look, Who's likely basically just fed on this stuff I don't think I'll ever be able to look at a normal woman and think she looks beautiful he's been robbed That is Satan, the the killer and the deceiver. Um, Or married women who become more and more taken with the heroes of romantic novels. They will find their husbands in irritatingly inadequate and dissatisfying. I mean, imagine if Mrs. Slack constantly compared me to a Navy SEAL, a billionaire businessman, or worst of all, a barbarian warrior. I mean, I wouldn't stand a chance, would I? If that's what she thinks I should be like, okay. So lust kills pleasure in the real thing. It's why it's a deceitful desire, but it can also be destructive to others, to our relationships uh, with them. When we trivialise somebody in lust, we are trivialising an image bearer of God, and so lust comes with a body count. And you know, we're given it in Scripture. We're given a great example of that in David. David and Bathsheba. I mean, this body count just keeps on extending. First of all, there's Uriah, Bathsheba's wife. Then there's their baby. Then there's the situation with um, Tamar and Ammon, his daughter. And then with, with Absalom. All as a result of David giving in to his lust. Lust comes with the body count of these uh, people we've damaged. And it also damages our relationship with God. You know, we think we, can, you know, we feel guilty, we feel dirty, so we feel like we can't approach Him, so we don't approach Him. And of course, worryingly, sexual immorality is repeatedly listed among those sins that shut people out of the kingdom of God. Unrepented of sexual sin has consequences; it's of eternal significance. So, how do we how do we deal with this? How can we turn lust around? And I would say by cultivating chastity. And by chastity, I mean, um, when you're single, I mean chaste celibacy. And in uh, marriage, chaste faithfulness. Okay, Augustine. This is probably my favourite Augustine quote. Okay, Augustine, in, in his book Confessions, he admitted to praying, God, grant me chastity and self-control but not yet okay so what he's saying is you know god make please lord make me holy please deal with these sexual desires that i have but don't do it just yet okay don't don't make me give up my uh, favorite sexual sins at least not this week okay so number one if we're to cultivate chastity we have to want it and that's his point we actually have to want it we want We have to want to be holy, and we have to want to honour those uh, uh, around us, so we we have to want it. Secondly, we have to desire God more than sex, if if we're to truly follow his path. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 5, Paul says in this passage about how we should be dealing with holiness and honour, he says we should abstain from sexual immorality. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. In other words, it's knowing God. It's knowing what he is really like, how beautiful he is. That's one of the keys to decreasing the hold of lust in our hearts. Because as we know him more, we love him more. Thirdly, avoid. Paul writes to Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, run away from lust and run towards God. And to the Church of Rome, he writes, uh, make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. So what might that mean? Just practically? It might mean only using your computer in a public space, it might mean using filters It might mean having an accountability partner. It might mean not closing the door on your bedroom when your boyfriend or your girlfriend is in there. It might mean not lying down on the bed together. And it's just really practical things to help you, You know, how might you actually not fall into this? And I would say think when you are most susceptible to temptation. Is it when you're sad? Is it when you're stressed? Is it when you're tired? Is it when you're lonely? You begin to recognise the pattern and then put stuff in place that can break it. Fourthly, resist. James says, uh, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Which I think certainly, you know, in my own life with sin just generally, we just need to say no long enough, don't we? That's basically it. We just we just give in too soon. We just need, we, we need to hold out for longer. And saying no may include refusing to indulge lustful thought patterns. You know, for me, I found it really helpful to say, when I you know, start recognise that I'm thinking about something, I say I rebuke that thought in the name of Jesus. It's just a habit you know, I've got into. So refuse to indulge lustful thought, thought patterns, refuse to indulge masturbation, refuse to indulge in sexual touching, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, set your boundaries and stick to them, help each other stick to them. And then fifthly, form good friendships. Because you can have the best internet filter, but probably the best way of um, becoming chaste is to form good, deep, close relationships. As C.S. Lewis said, love is the great conqueror of lust. It's knowing what the real thing is, uh, that helps us spot the fake, and uh, it means we'll be less easily swayed by the false versions on of an offer and you know, I think what Paul would say as well in time if you can get married. Now none of that is meant to be a book of rules, but there should be a, a, there should be a sustained attempt on our parts to form our hearts to love what is good and what is truly beautiful. And then I'll just finish and say, um, hey, there's hope. There really is hope. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, having talked about how sexually immoral, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says, and such were some of you. Hey, this is what we used to be like, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. None of us are defined by our past. None of us are defined by our sexual sin or where we should have said no, where we continue to say yes. You are defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where your identity is. And when God sees you, he sees his Son whom he loves. So however hard we struggle, however bad the the fight is, you know, Christ loves you. You are washed. We're accepted in the question. Anyway, you know, I was just thinking about your advice forming good friendships, which yeah. is great. Uh, I was gonna say that it's more than just—it could be more than just right, knowing knowing the real thing from the fake. You yeah. know, like I think maybe, maybe, maybe you didn't have this in mind, but like there's a sense in which lot lust is thinking less of. Whoever it is you're lusting yeah. after. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's dishonoring them. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of how that actually gets carried yeah. out in yeah. actions or not. And loving, to love that person is to not do something that's yeah. dishonoring them. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say you know, investing ourselves in real relationships, lust effectively is fake, whether it's porn, okay, or this fake relationship that, that tells you, I really love you, but actually is just using you. So it's fake. Real relationship or, or or genuine friendships, that's the real thing. And it's as we are in community and helping one another and recognising that this is a battle and that we're all struggling with it at one one level or another. It's just one of the aids we have to help us in the fight, I think. Any other questions? You're all exhausted. I'm sorry. Right, um, why don't you going? Uh, single-sex groups, just 10 minutes. Just look at um, one of those, a um, uh, couple, couple of the questions. Single-sex groups. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you me.